super good, right? <laughs> Welcome everyone to the Tori Slash Show. Today is November 3rd, 2021. I've been so busy trying to catch up because I was, I, I don't think people understand just how impaired I was this past week, completely impaired. I had a lot of catching up to do. I am not even close to catching up and I still have stuff to do, right? <laughs> so today I thought I would put some, you know, things to kind of perspective. There's a lot of people that talk shit. You know, Jimmy Kimmel freaking went to town with uh, all these grifters. I'm so glad that they're showing themselves. So glad. And then there's other grifters that pretend, 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 pretend. Like they know, like they know, like they know. Stop. Most of the things that you're seeing have already been said. And if not straight from the president's mouth, then, well, I guess from time travelers. So I think we should start, kind of get out the door, because we're going to talk about SCOTUS case today, because I remembered something. And I thought to myself, you know, there's, there's public record of this, for sure. For over a year, 2019, 2020, I kept saying, in 2018, that, you know, Spygate, Obamagate, all this crap is is nothing compared to SCOTUS gate. And today I was having a conversation with someone and they were like, this is so, they're so bad. You saw what happened. I was like, I did. And this is what's horrible. There's so many people that prey on other people, pray, 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 right? That say they know because they have a few connections here, a few connections there, and they think they know what's going on, right? Or they pretend to know what's going on, or they just make it up because they get paid a shit ton of money to literally give misdirection. A shit ton of money. I saw that from Tucker's piece. They're hiding who funded. They're hiding who funded. That's a big deal. That is a very big deal. Very big deal. I won't comment on that yet because I haven't had time to see the whole thing. But I will show you Jimmy Kimmel and what he had to say about what happened in Dallas. Now, I want you to remember this. He has every right to say this. I'm all for him, though. This allowed them to talk more shit about actual patriots. That's what sucks. Here we go. Thanks for watching and for coming. Oh, please relax. We have a lot to get to tonight. It's, um, it's election day. It, uh, a guy cried about his jacket on The Bachelorette. We have a lot of important news today, and we'll get to all of it. But first, I want to I want to take a moment to share something that has me a little bit disturbed and certainly puzzled. The story goes like this. One of our producers, let's call her Maggie, because that's her name, Maggie. It's, um, so let's call her that. Maggie was at uh, a wedding in Greenwich, Connecticut over the weekend. She's staying at the Hyatt Regency Hotel. And it's Friday night. She got back from the rehearsal dinner and turned on our show, which, by the way, Maggie, I appreciate. So she turned in, she tuned into the uh, local ABC affiliate on the cable system in the room. And this is the description uh, she found of me and our show. Chubby, cheeky comedian Jimmy Kimmel, late of cable TV's raunchy The Man Show, launched his own late night ABC talk variety series on January 26, 2003. Really? 19 years later, that's still what we're going with? It's... Why do I feel like that's gonna be on my obituary? Now thanks whoever the hell did that. Uh, a few years ago when everybody was doing the Harlem Shake, and at first you thought, oh, that's dumb. But then like 80% of your friends on social media were doing it. And you're like, well, I guess I should do the Harlem Shake. 
and you shook, and it was, this is kind of like that, except in this case, if you dance, you won't die on a ventilator, so why not? There is a new COVID variant making the rounds called Delta Plus. Uh, Delta Plus spreads faster and has 40% more leg room, which is nice. These new names they come up with have to be catchier, like hurricanes. We should start naming the new variants after prominent anti-vaxxers. I'm sorry, sir, you've tested positive for Scott Baio, for instance. Speaking of contagious viruses, we had a new episode of The Bachelorette tonight, and um, this an insult. Ruin it. A four-year-old into a T-Rex costume. I got 11 emails yesterday from him, the day before the election, including no regrets, folks. Really, not even for emailing me 22 times in 48 hours, no regrets? 2.44 a.m. this morning, need your eyes on this. <laughs> Leave, my eyes are trying to sleep. He even sent an email asking if he was sending too many emails. Yes, you are. What part of unsubscribe are you not understanding? I get this constantly. I get it from, I get it from the Trump people. I get it from the Democrats. At this point, I would pay to be left alone. I Donate $100. We won't email you for a month. $250, three months, $500. Maybe they'll let us live our lives for a year. <laughs> President Biden is headed home right now. He was in Scotland for the UN Climate Change Conference during which more than 100 world leaders agreed to end deforestation by the year 2030. Basically, they made a deal to save the Amazon from Amazon at this conference. <laughs> the Queen of England addressed the summit. She had a video message asking leaders to act for our children and our children's children, all of which she's probably going to outlive. What is that woman, a thousand years old now? She was around before the Earth even had climate. But the idea is, if we work together, we can save what's left of our planet's great forests just in time for Christmas tree season. <laughs> the UN Secretary General got things off to a fun start. He told the delegates, we are, quote, digging our own graves. And Senator Joe Manchin was like, yeah, but if we stop, we're going to put a lot of grave diggers out of business. What about them? I don't know if we have more crazy people of below average intelligence in Congress now, or we're just noticing them more, but we have a lot of them, including this rocket scientist, the Honorable Louis Gohmert of Texas, who's trying to look at the bright side of catastrophic global warming. I've read where experts have said, if you got a choice between the temperature getting slightly warmer or slightly colder, you want warmer because if it's getting slightly colder, that means there's less time for crops to grow. If it's slightly warmer, not too much warmer, then you got more time for crops to grow, you got more food. Right, but if there's no water, how do you... Oh, never mind, you big silly gomer. Where I come from, when you get warmer, that means you're closer to finding where they done hid your birthday boots. And then we have the genius from Georgia, Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was fined not one, but four more times yesterday for refusing to wear a mask on the House floor. Clan mom has been fined 20 times now for not wearing a mask. $48,000 in fines, which is a lot of truck nuts, you know? Can we please just fast forward to the part where she gets kicked out of Congress, her husband leaves her for a man, and she starts dating Pete Davidson, please? Marjorie, she's not the only one, by the way. Her fellow whack job from Colorado, Lauren Bulbert. You know this, uh, she's, she's now sinking her rabid teeth into a right-wing rumor that Dr. Fauci and the National Institutes of Health used taxpayer money to torture dogs. We need accountability. 
Fauci should be arrested for lying to Congress. He should be fired from his position as NIH director. We need a full investigation into just how many puppies were eaten alive on Fauci's watch. Every time I see this woman speak, I expect it to turn into stepmother porn. <laughs> you know, the country is getting crazier by the minute. In Dallas today, hundreds of these okay you guys have to admit that was funny okay because <laughs> she, she looks <laughs> but she's not wrong it's not just puppies we should talk about the humans but again humans don't matter it's the puppies that matter right so um it was funny though um i thought it was funny when he said i'm expecting it to be stepmother porn because not like i watch porn now right younger days maybe it was always a scene in front of the desk just saying. So it was kind of funny the way he said it. Okay. And, and that was true. Like that, that was super funny, but it's important for you guys to see how they take what we say and minimize it. Uh, you know, anytime that I I've met Lauren Bobert, she's amazing. She's tiny and a little firecracker, right? But to talk about the animals that are being tortured with taxpayer dollars, uh, it's not funny right? I mean, we could talk about humans too, but nobody cares about humans. Well, anyway, here's where it comes in. QAnon nuts gathered in Philly Plaza to witness the triumphant return of John F. Kennedy Jr., who you may recall is dead. He died in a plane crash in 1999, but these people believe he didn't actually die. He's been working as a secret agent of Donald Trump to put him in power for real. So this, they believed he was coming back at 12.30. This is the scene at 12.29 this afternoon when John John was expected to arrive in Dallas. It is almost 12.29. Any minute now, the big reveal. <laughs> You're going to find this hard to believe. He didn't show. He did not. Can you imagine how rude that is? <laughs> All those people thought JFK Jr. was coming to see them in Dallas. And even if he did come, do you think he would be on your side? I, some of these bananas were saying John F. Kennedy Sr. was going to show up, too. Which JFK was born in 1917. Even if he was alive, he'd be 104 years old. Why not bring back Abraham Lincoln, too, while we're at it? So neither JFK showed up. But rather than say, okay, we were wrong, this is crazy, they immediately came up with a new prediction claiming the Kennedys and other deceased celebrities will show themselves at a Rolling Stones concert in Dallas later tonight. So I guess Charlie Watts is back with the band. I don't know. This is like Linus waiting for the Great Pumpkin, but without the charm. It's crazy. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of Americans believe this, and it makes you wonder where the hell do they come up with this stuff and I think I may have stumbled upon the answer here. Looking for insane conspiracy theories to actually believe? Introducing MAGA Libs. Right. Adjective. Portly. Nationality. Canadian. Just fill in the blanks and get ready for outrage. Plural noun. Croutons. Okay, let's try it. Those portly Democrats are putting Canadian microchips in the election croutons. I knew it! No, Mama, why? From the makers of Rubik's Cube and Nazi. With dozens of cuckoo conspiracies to keep your family furious for hours. Oh my God, 
the fuzzy pedophiles are using robotic chipmunks to control our nipples? Gotta let the people know that I gotta get away with this. Own the libs with Mega Libs. Available at Hobby Lobby. So, with their right, they had every single right to make fun of people that push these theories. So, you know, one thing that, that, that a lot of people, nothing happened with scooters. I'm going to show you now because I actually have, and I thought I'd let it sit because I was like, you know, people are going to see this. People are going to understand it. People are going to see when it started, which was right. It began at the end of February and it was pushing all in March. It was all hidden in plain sight and I let it sit. So that way people can attack and say, 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 say. But today, it's November, so that's seven months later. <laughs> I mean, eight months later, nine months later. So I thought I'd showcase that. So that's what we're going to showcase a little bit later. For now, let's just talk about hmm, just some various things before we get into all of that. So... There's a new national security threat, apparently, and the military needs recruits because everyone's leaving. So I saw this, <laughs> I saw this clip and I was like, okay, this is, this is something we need to watch together. Out of building back better. It's always been about managing the decline of America, really maybe even empowering the decline of America. And right now there is a looming national defense crisis that no one is talking about. America is struggling to fill the ranks with new recruits in the military. The Heritage Foundation is reporting today in a newly re released report that recruiting will get even more difficult in the coming years to the point where the military may consistently fail to meet its goals. That goal is to attract 160,000 new recruits each year. And you know what makes the recruitment harder? Vaccine mandates, left-wing pandering, left-wing pandering generals as well, and a commander-in-chief who despises America and the military. Who in the heck would want to go into the military when you have those things going on? Well, joining me now is someone very familiar with the sad turn our military is taking, former Space Force commander and the author of the book, Irresistible Revolution, Marxism Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military. Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer is here. Colonel Lohmeyer, it's great to see you. Grant, happy to be here with you. Thanks. Are you surprised by this heritage report that uh, we're going to have a real hard time filling ranks in the United States military? Yeah, in fact, that was the first question out of my mouth to your viewers. Is anyone surprised about this? I mean, it doesn't take a strategist or a careful planner to see uh, over the past several months, frankly, more than that, that we were going to face a retention and recruiting problem in our services. When I was a, a commander of a Space Force unit, I did dozens of interviews with my service members. Uh, the enlisted service members in particular, when asked why it is that they joined the service, would often say that they were interested in the GI Bill benefits, having their education paid for. And right now we've got a progressive leftist element, for example, in the Democrat Party that wants to make community colleges free, which will completely disincentivize a, a large portion of the 18 to 24 uh, year group, uh, part of our recruitment pool from actually signing up to join the military. That had huge pull. And of course, I've written a book that you just mentioned about the Marxist revolutionary impulse that is not only sweeping across our country, but our military as well. Our diversity, equity, and inclusion industry uh, is a great disincentivizer 
of people on both sides of the political aisle. No one wants to hear that their country is a terrible place uh, to live, that it's not worth defending. When you start to, to share those kinds of narratives, like the New York Times 1619 Project, uh, there are people that will believe that narrative and decide they don't want to serve their country. And there are people that, that will hate that narrative and say, this isn't what I signed up for. And we're not going to be able to recruit those people into our service either. I mean, who the heck would want to go to work for a commander in chief that literally, I think he despises America. He's oftentimes apologizes for it, just like his old boss, Barack Obama, did. Um, but all this brings us to the big question is, are we ready? Well, the Heritage Foundation, Dakota Wood, uh, talked about this. Let me roll this soundbite for you and then get your response. We think uh, our military is marginally capable of fulfilling its mission. What we talk about in terms of the marginal capabilities or a weak service is that it's not big enough or the equipment that it has is too old uh, to keep pace with the uh, developments of our uh, adversaries and competitors around the world. Colonel Lohmeyer, I've been talking about it all week. China launched a hypersonic missile around the globe. We're years away from being able to do the same thing. Um, and then we have ranks of military that could put us in a, in a real problem. Um, he says we may not be ready, marginally ready. We've got real enemies out there that are ready. How concerned are you? Well, the hypersonic glide vehicles issue isn't a new problem, although it's hit the press in the past uh, week. I'll tell you, our senior military leaders and certain portions of our active duty force are very concerned about this problem and have been for some time. And I know there's dedicated efforts to uh, combating both detecting, reporting, and, um, and finding ways to shoot down that type of a weapon. But one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, are we going to have the funding uh, to uh, create the kinds of capabilities they can defeat that, that weapon. And will we have the manpower? The Biden administration is talking about cutting an extra 5,000 service members, according to that Heritage Report. Uh, we're already facing the retention and recruitment problems, and now we're going to cut additional uh, personnel from our services. Yeah. Really bad choice. I think we're going to have to make some different decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you talk about hypersonic technology. That's, I believe, is two miles every second. That's how fast it's going. Two miles in one second. Uh, it's got to be difficult to shoot out of the air. But uh, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer, great to have you on the program. Thank you, as always. Thanks, Grant. Appreciate being here. We are faced with a dwindling military and nobody wants to join. Like, who the fuck would want to join? Right? When President Trump was president, everybody wanted to join. Every single person wanted to join. Well, the elections that happened yesterday were a little bit off. New Jersey had some weird wins, they say. It wasn't weird. Some dude didn't even spend more than $200 and got elected. Why? Because he was a retired trucker, an American. That's exactly who we want representing us. We don't need politicians. A dude spent less than 200 bucks, right? His campaign was like, I'm just an average dude and I'll listen to you and let's get shit done. Pretty much simplicity, right? So simple. And yet, boom, there it is. He won. And everyone's got their panties in a twist. See, you don't need money to win. You don't need money to win. You don't need the GOP. You don't need the DNC. You need the people. And if the people say, yeah, you know what? You've got balls. Since you've got balls... I would like you to speak for me because you've got big balls and you can do that for me and I'm happy. Here's my vote. 
But they also stole the election because what's really weird is all of New Jersey went red, but Governor Murphy won. So weird. And then, oh, Virginia, they were really upset. Take a listen to this clip. To, to this, this. Yeah, yeah, everyone says, well, well, a state vote is a state vote, and that's it. I think very few people who look at this think this was just about Virginia well, and New Jersey. New Jersey yeah. Right. The one thing I would bring out, too, is it was a huge risk and a bad, obviously, tactic for uh, for uh, for McAuliffe to bring out the former president, Barack Obama, his uh, Stacey Abrams, who was the rock star of Georgia, to bring out Jill Biden, to ask Kamala Harris to cut a tape and go to 300 churches. Him more than it helped him? I think there's no doubt about it, because the people of Virginia wanted it to be about Virginia. Right. And he's saying, well, you might not like me, but look at how look at how sure. popular my friends are. Right. And in the end, now they all lose. They go down with McAuliffe. And actually, President Obama Obama worked in New Jersey, and man, that didn't help. I think it's also about the issues. I mean, when you're down in Virginia, they are so worried about what's happening in their schools. I think this was a referendum on Biden and on the progressive movement and on CRT. I think that uh, all these suburban parents are speaking out. They're yeah. getting involved for the first time. These are parents that never really were involved in school board right. issues, not involved in politics at all, and they might have voted one party or the other based on their families, but this was about the issues. Right, and for the parents who lived through the pandemic where the kids were at home, Correct. they looked over their shoulders for a year and they said, okay, th th wait a minute, what are you learning? Mm -hmm. And then they say, hey, what are you teaching them? And it's like, nah, we're not teaching them that. And it's like, I saw it with my own two eyes. So is it really the CRT that bothers us? Let's remember that Terry McAuliffe was supporting infanticide. Remember, he said that you could kill the baby just as you're giving birth, but before its head comes out, you can sever the head while the head is still inside you and the feet are dangling out. You are more than happy to kill the baby because it is your body, your choice, regardless if it's a baby that can live, right? You're allowed to just snip the cord and kill it because you have that choice. You know, when you're, when you're behind something like that, um, you know, yeah, CRT is a problem. Yeah, all these libtard you know, insane, evil things are in our problem. When you're talking about killing babies, I mean, that's disgusting. If anything, that should have been top of the list discussion, which is the infanticide conversation. So I'm, I was actually shocked that I didn't see it going around much more. So, you know, the election was not, they couldn't cheat enough because people were very upset about that infanticide stuff, not just the CRT. So, um, this goes back to what McCarthy said. Listen to this sound snippet. Kleiman, what do you think, this, what does this tell you about the depth of seats that you could target? That's a, that's a good question. If, if I was in the Democratic conference today, and you want to surely look at it from a political science point of view. If you're a Democrat, and President Biden won your seat by 16 points, you're in a competitive race next year. You are no longer safe. It's no longer will the competition of competitive seats be small. It'll be more than 70 Democrats that will be competitive. There's many that are going to lose their races based upon walking off a cliff from Nancy Pelosi pushing them. She may not care to, if she loses, 
She lost 63 the last time she was speaker, moving policy that the country didn't care for. Many believe she won't stay around, so is she going to be there to defend you? Are you going to bring President Biden in with his policies into your district to defend you? Are you going to bring the vice president in? Terry McAuliffe did, and look what happened to him. I don't believe that they can be helpful. What I do believe, if they continue to push these policies, it could be one of the biggest election losses for Democrats. I don't know. When she was speaker last time, losing 63 set a record but it could be more competitive this time as well. Yes, last question. So in other words, they're toast. That even the Democrats can't vote for them, but we want them to do that. I mean, they pulled all the guns. Obama's, you know, the whole nine years. Stacey Abrams, like, why would you even think that's a good idea? Like, she's so repulsive just as a person. It's like having Latoya from New Orleans. She's terrible too. Just looking at her makes you sick. But what did Joe Biden have to say about this? Let's see. It'll be interesting, I guess. I'll start all the way at the end. Thank you, Mr. President. Appreciate it. You're not all the way at the end, but that's okay. You're up. <laughs> um, as leader of the Democratic Party, how much responsibility do you take for the dismal results in Virginia and the well, look, yesterday reminded me of uh, that one of the sacred rights we have is to be able to go out and cast our votes. And remember that we all have an obligation to accept the legitimacy of these elections. I was talking to Terry to congratulate him today. He got 600,000 more votes than any Democrat ever has gotten. We brought out every Democrat about there was more votes than ever has been cast for a Democratic incumbent. I'm not incumbent, a Democrat running for governor. And no governor in Virginia has ever won when he's of the same or he or she's the same party as a sitting president. What I do know is, I do know that people want us to get things done. They want us to get things done. And that's why I'm continuing to push very hard for the Democratic Party to move along and pass my infrastructure bill and my Build Back Better bill. I think if we look, think about what, we, what we're talking about here. People are upset and uncertain about a lot of things, from COVID to school to jobs to a whole range of things and the cost of the, the, the gallon of gasoline. Which he did, and people are more confused as to how the hell is he standing up you know, he looks like he's been medicated completely in order to, you know, have this conversation. So it's November, so we're going to have this conversation. So let's start with um, analyzing the end of V for Vendetta. I found this magnificent video that was actually published on November 5th, 2020, which is so badass. And I think that we should kind of take a look at it. So that way we can understand Skoda's gate better. Let's take a watch slash listen together um, and enjoy, I guess. Here we go. Many were left puzzled by the film's cryptic message. Everything converges in a final act that is truly triumphant and we're here to revel in its glory. This is the ending of V for Vendetta Explained. 
The main character, known simply as V, wears a mask based on the likeness of a man named Guy Fawkes. In V for Vendetta's opening sequence, we learn about Fawkes' foiled plan to bomb the House of Parliament in the 15th century. Seems foolish to base your identity on that of a failed rebel, but the film comes full circle. Fawkes was captured on the 5th of November, and the date carries great significance. V gives us a catchy bit of rhythmic poetry to ensure the date does not leave our minds. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. The mask's cheeky grin and stark colors implant a memorable image. At first, it seems that the mask is used for anonymity. But as we learn more about V, it becomes apparent that his every word and action is full of meaning. It is not Falk's lack of success that is meant to be remembered, but rather his intentions. The idea of freedom that drove him to act is what we are meant to remember. The government in V for Vendetta is run by High Chancellor Sutler, played by John Hurt. The movie's portrayal of a controlling monarch seems less futuristic now that we are just a few clicks away from having a president sponsored by Mountain Dew. While addressing his subordinates, Sutler seems to rule with authority, but his actions show that he's quite sensitive. When talk show host Gordon Dietrich airs an unauthorized sketch making fun of Sutler, the Chancellor is so upset that he destroys his glass of milk. The controlling political party rose to power when a virus ravaged the UK and killed nearly 100,000 people. The pandemic allowed Sutler to win his election by an overwhelming majority and take control of the entire government. While the country was terrified by the threat of a virus, Sutler implemented curfews and restrictions on the general public. Fearful citizens willingly complied, and slowly but surely, strict government rule became the norm. Throughout V for Vendetta, there are glimpses of fans rolling through the city, listening to people's conversations across town, logging them all into a database. The data is presented to Sutler, who then instructs the news outlets regarding which stories to tell in order to shift the collective public's psyche. I want everyone to remember why they need us! The whole process happens at a terrifying speed. When V hijacks the news station, the story is spun and released to the public within minutes of its conclusion, underscoring the systematic prison of the mind from which our hero is working to free the public. People can be killed and stories can be twisted, and V knows that in order to rally the people, he needs to give them something more durable to latch onto. And to do this, it helps to be handy with throwing knives and homemade explosives. The forceful hand of the Norse Fire Party is a secret police known as the Fingermen. These officers regulate the laws governing the city. They seem to work with impunity and are overrun with evil personalities. Evie runs into two Fingermen at the beginning of the film who are set to assault her in an alley, and would have succeeded had it not been for intervention from a masked vigilante with a robust vocabulary. The head of the Fingermen, a man named Peter Creedy, is the right hand to High Chancellor Sutler. Not only do they subdue any political opposition, they also crack down violently on anything they see is lacking in purity. Homosexuality and the Muslim religion are among these things which result in a visit from Creedy. The gruff, remorseless commander kicks down doors and quickly smothers his victims on a black mask, after which they disappear. Evie lost her parents to such a raid. Unfortunately, she is forced to endure a similar experience at Gordon Dietrich's house. After the talk show host airs his comedy sketch poking fun of Sutler, Creedy and his men show up at his house and beat the comedian into submission, then wrap his head in a black bag before dragging him off. For citizens, the entire process is a primary source of fear for being anything but complacent in their prisons. We never see V's face throughout the entire film. While we get bits and pieces of V's past, we never learn his true name. He uses his own power of anonymity to spread an idea throughout the population. V understands that in order for his vision of toppling the Norse Fire Party to happen, the power to do so needs to be put in the hands of the people. His primary weapons are his words and a single image for people to connect with, the Guy Fawkes mask. 
and also knives. The self-professed vaudevillian veteran can't help but implement his flair for drama, though. The hero's acts are accompanied by beautiful roses, fireworks, and triumphant symphonies. The closest we get to learning V's true identity is when Chief Inspector Finch meets up with the hero and hears the whole truth. Their own government, not religious extremists, manufactured a virus and unleashed it on its own citizens in order to gain control. Finch is a step behind V the whole year leading up to the 5th of November, and his disillusionment with his own political party shows as he follows the trail. After V saves Evie from the Fingermen, he asks her to accompany him to a symphony. She agrees and is startled to find that the music is accompanied by a destructive act of terrorism. V blows up the old Bailey building, complete with fireworks and the 1812 overture blasting across every speaker in London. News outlets quickly spin the story as a controlled demolition, with some workers blamed for the unplanned use of fireworks and music. Luckily, the news outlet has some light security. V takes control of the emergency broadcast system and airs a message to the public, claiming responsibility for the bombing and sharing in their feelings that There is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? The 5th of November is set as a date for citizens to meet at Parliament and march against a tyrannical government. The entire act is ingenious. V doesn't beat his idea into people's minds through daily repetition like Suttler. He implants the idea and then steps back, allowing the people to process it on their own and come to their own conclusions. The idea grows over the course of a year as the people get angrier at what their country has become. V for Vendetta dances in and out of living rooms, nursing homes, and bars across London to show the public's consumption of media and propaganda. You begin to see people's growth while the story plays out, despite not even hearing some of them speak. The primary personification for the growth of the entire population is focused on Evie. Her personal journey helps us follow the public's prison escape on a visceral, emotional level. While Evie is trying to escape the Fingermen raid at Dietrich's house, she is snatched and black-bagged. A sobbing Evie is washed with a fire hose and has all her hair cut off before she's tossed in an underground bunker where she's kept in between interrogation sessions. She stumbles across a scroll of toilet paper in her cell that has a biography written on it by another woman who was imprisoned there. The story tells of a lesbian actress who was abducted and sent to the detention center when the North Fire Party came to power. What she reads invigorates Evie. She stares down her interrogator, refuses to cooperate, and accepts her fate. Then you have no fear anymore. You're completely free. The shadowy figure in the doorway steps back into the hallway before vanishing, leaving the door ajar. A quick search of her prison shows that she is actually back at V's home base, and he'd been interrogating her the whole time. While Evie is navigating her own personal transformation, the rest of the country is reaching a boiling point. V fans of flames by mailing out a Guy Fawkes mask to every person in London, hundreds of thousands of them. Their arrival cements the reality of his words in people's minds. One of the personalities we come to recognize in the various London living rooms is a young girl with thick glasses who is visibly passionate about the entire movement. The girl dons one of the masks and sets out to graffiti a propaganda sign nearby. When a fingerman spots her in the act, he shouts at her causing the little girl to run. He draws his gun and shoots her dead in the street. The act causes a mob of angry citizens to surround the finger man while he arrogantly flashes his badge and commands everyone to back away. The people of London have had enough, and a wrench to the finger man's skull ignites the town in a series of riots that cause Suttler to unleash a wave of military force to subdue the public. Just as Evie is no longer too scared to act, the city's residents have also shed their fears and jumped to action. The town begins to fight back against military rule while they eagerly await the 5th of November. There are a few subtle nods to V's past throughout the film, 
and one of its most obscure comes when he plays with Creedy's fears in order to get to Sutler. While biding his time until November, V systematically kills the staff that worked at a detention center called Larkhill, the main source of the human testing that helped create the virus. The facility's head physician has a story told through a reading of her diary. During this story, we pan across several cells until we reach cell number 5, marked in Roman numerals by the letter V. Each cell before reaching V's is marked in chalk by a big X to signify the death of its occupant. When V approaches Creedy to manipulate him into giving up Sutler, he tells the head finger man to signal his agreement with the plan by marking his door in chalk with an X. Nothing the hero does is without meaning. In a vague act of foreshadowing, the cruel lawman seals his own fate by marking his door. V is aware that a vacuum of power needs to be created. After a trembling Sutler is dragged out of his bunker and delivered to the cloaked hero, Creedy himself puts a bullet through the Chancellor's head. Following the act of betrayal, V reneges on their deal and kills Creedy's entire crew, then strangles the head finger man to death. With all those in power eliminated, the military personnel in charge of defending Parliament are left without any orders. In probably the most futuristic act of the film, they all hold steady as a mob of cloaked Guy Fawkes mass citizens march towards them. The commander of the defending troops orders his soldiers to stand down once he fails to receive any orders. The mob washes over the troops and walks past them towards Parliament. After his final confrontation, a blood-soaked V stumbles back to the subway platform where he last talked with Evie and collapses. He bleeds out in her arms, leaving Evie with a train full of explosives and a lever. She places his body on the train and somehow finds a large amount of roses to lay around his body in memoriam. Chief Inspector Finch finally catches up to them and steps onto the platform with his gun half-heartedly aimed. The final choice to set themselves free is left up to Finch and Evie. Evie refuses to stand down. Finch lowers his gun and lets her pull the lever. V's death does not dampen his flair for drama. Once again, a symphony blares across the city's loudspeakers as the camera pans across the city center, packed shoulder to shoulder with his likeness. He delivers on his word, and Parliament erupts in a plume of rubble as explosives arrive at its foundations. Fireworks light up a sea of people people who all remove their masks one by one, revealing those we have connected with throughout the story. It is at this climactic ending of V for Vendetta that the importance of V's anonymity becomes apparent. Beneath this mask there is more than flesh. Beneath this mask there is an idea, Mr. Creedy. By never revealing his identity, V left no single person to connect to the idea. All that was left was the idea itself. Check out one of our newest videos right here. Plus, even more Looper videos about your favorite movies are coming soon. Subscribe to our <clears throat> So I thought that explanation was important. And I wanted to elaborate a little bit. Anonymity is a way that allows an idea to perpetuate without a face. And the reason it is so is because an idea is usually tied to a person, always. Either that be love, hate, faith, hope, revenge, whatever it may be, it's tied to a person. So it's important that anonymity exists. Not because of the mystery, but because you don't want that idea tied to the story of the person who gave birth, or I should say, ignited that idea that everyone had. And therefore, that anonymity should remain. Because then it's just an idea that everyone thought for themselves. Because you don't have to force truth, information, and insight 
to anyone. You give them the tools, you have the difficult conversations, and then you step away. In the movie, the masks that were sent out were slight nudges for people to be more comfortable with that idea. And you have been doing that with your stickers, making claim, laying claim. Now, the best part of this film is a part that is one of the best. But before I show you, I need to show you something. I, um, I believe that I have to wait until this is five years. So it's just a couple more days to be able to speak. Just a couple more days. Having said that, having said that, let's watch and listen to this speech called The Seeds of a Revolution. I just want you to hear it. Listen. Dad, what's wrong with the telly? Good evening, London. Allow me first to apologize for this emergency channel. I do, like many of you, appreciate the comforts of the everyday routine, the security of the familiar, the tranquility, repetition. Else. I enjoy them as much as any bloke. But in the spirit of commemoration, whereby those important events of the past, usually associated with someone's death or the end of some awful bloody struggle, are celebrated with a nice holiday, I thought we could mark this November the 5th, a day that is sadly no longer remembered, by taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. You think? Just let me I think. Expect even now, orders are being shouted into telephones, and men with guns will soon be on their way. It's chances that... Damn it! Why? Because while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, words will always retain their power. Words offer the means to meaning, and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is, there is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? You designed it, sir. You wanted it foolproof. You told me every television in London. Cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression. And where once you had the freedom to object, think and speak as you saw fit, you now have censors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and scattering your cameras. How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you, and in your panic you turned to the now High Chancellor Adam Sutler. He promised you order, he promised you peace, 
And all he demanded in return was your silent, obedient consent. Inspector, you're almost through. Last night, I sought to end that silence. Last night, I destroyed the old Bailey to remind this country of what it has forgotten. More than 400 years ago, a great citizen wished to embed the 5th of November forever in our memory. His hope was to remind the world that fairness, justice, and freedom are more than words. They are perspectives. So if you've seen nothing, if the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest that you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel, and if you would seek as I seek, then I ask you to stand beside me one year from tonight, outside the gates of Parliament, and together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten. Seeds of a Revolution We've been in one of the most civilized civil wars, civilized revolutions and civil wars now for nearly a decade. Every month, every year, every week, every day, every minute that went by, more were recruited into this war because they realized just how controlled, just how enslaved they are. And in order to be able to see these atrocities, you must experience them. We can't tell you. We have to show you. So in order to see what a great nation you can be, you have a leader that gives you everything you would ever hope for in a nation. It gives you a leader that pushes past all those people that had their hands in your pocket from other countries. Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia, you name it, that nation had their hand in your pocket. Stealing from the American people? I don't know. I wouldn't say stealing if the people that are supposedly elected, which you've not elected, gave it to them. So you had four years that they totally destroyed by constantly attacking the president that you had that made you Proud to be an American again. Proud. He had deployed people within every single department. Department of Labor, <coughs> Energy, Health, and the State Department. To, you know, to trim the fat and stop all. Did you know that in the first few weeks, the State Department had, you know, started the process on, of defunding uh, many UN programs. UNGA was done. So many. He brought energy back to our country, blew a breath of life into these nations, into our nations. <laughs> Steel mill areas, coal miners, right? He gave us everything we wanted in a president. Cut out all these regulations, spoke and made America respected again. 
He used the leverage of, all right, we've been all in it together. America's been serving some Lord. We don't know. I mean, it's apparent, but okay. And we say no more. He brought back faith. He brought back unity. And he inspired our military like no other. And while he was doing that, he did it hogtied. They were impeaching him. They were attacking him. They were hiding their tracks. They were, they were, they were. And you had the propaganda 24-7. And just because they couldn't destroy him with just talking smack and making things up, they enslaved the whole world. They released a virus, right? Virus. It's not even a virus because there's no vaccine. But, you know, they change definitions all the time. So now altering your DNA, gene therapy, is considered a vaccine, of course, of course, of course. So we have all that happen in the past four, in a four-year presidency of President Trump. You saw what an amazing president is. You saw amazing things happen. You saw all the ugly. You were waking up. And an idea was planted for you to ask questions. It was amplified, amplified globally just to be able to have you awaken and see it for yourself and work for yourself. Not waiting for someone to come save you, but to be part of that movement. Boy, has this year gone fast. We're about to put some boots on in December, though. You must remember how amazing it felt to have such a great president. And you also must see now the difference. How you see politicians now after those four years. How you see the truth how you can see right through their lies, right through their shenanigans, how you can see it. You can see it. it. You can see it so well that you can literally lift your finger and touch it and say, loser, liar. They've got blackmail on you. This, that, this. So the idea... The seeds of the revolution had been planted for many years by many people, and they were very sporadic. But it took great organization to perpetuate an idea under anonymity. And unfortunately, many people never take the message over the messenger. They need a messenger. They need to see a face. If you see a face, it's no longer an idea. It's that face's idea. See, that's why it's important to not know where the source is for some ideas. But this is a, a human trait that enslaved people have. That they'll follow orders happily. Because that's how it was in the beginning. As long as there's a face to the words and the statements and the charge that's being given. That's 
horrific because I think we're at the point now where there's no need for a face anymore. I mean, way past that. Y'all have faces now. We're past that point. Right now, you don't need a face. You are that idea. You own that idea and you propagate that idea every single day to every single person around you. You are the revolution. That is what the storm was. Standing together, organized in a revolutionary movement. You are the storm. And slowly but surely, you will see just how much this idea provided. You will see just how much. Well, I mean, time travel is real. Um, you will see how all of this ties in to everything your gut tells you. See, unlike many people who claim to this, that, they have a better idea of things. They don't understand the source. You know, they, there's a lot of people that talk about, oh, there's human trafficking and child trafficking. Save the children. That's true. When I saw them talking about the beagles, and I knew that PETA, I said that <laughs> months ago, obviously drawing parallels, of course, with NABF. I said PETA was going to take them out, and you watched that. You saw that. But how can I articulate this in a, in a good way? I'm trying to think. Things have happened that you don't see. Not because they're hidden from sight. It's not like someone's been arrested undercover or hanged or tried, right? No. Let's talk more. It's in your face and you don't see it. I think we were the only ones that talked about Joe Biden nominating an eco-terrorist to take over the land. And, you know, I'm like, how the hell did nobody talk about that? Right? Everything is there. You just don't see it. And the reason you don't see it is because you're conditioned to follow leaders. This is why I was very upset when an idea was owned. It was as if a dog pissed on the tree to market when it should have remained an idea. I was very upset. I was very, very upset. I was very upset to see a lot of people that are, you know, former this, former that. They worked with President Trump that still think they know the whole thing just because they worked. It, it scares me in a way because there's still that air of arrogance there. It, there's this arrogance. Lots of arrogance. But this month is going to be a month of wins. It's going to exit with whoosh, real great and thanks. But I'm sorry. 
I'm going to have to put some boots uh, around December 3rd. We need to slow it down a bit because we got a big year coming ahead. Everyone out there is getting stuff done. They're doing a ton of patriotic shit. They love their country. They love their communities. They love their children. They love their grandchildren. And they're fed up. It's almost like in the movie. The idea went and people woke up. Obviously, the movie, they had to get that shit done in, you know, 90 minutes. In real life, it's taking a very long time. And it's extremely painful. It's long, it's tedious, it's stretched out, and it's at different degrees. You know, I, I see it all the time when people talk about things, and it's like, guys, you're being conditioned to believe shit that's insane. Guys, you're being conditioned to believe that there's one person or this or that. Oh, please, just focus on you. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk Skoda Skate. How's that? I found this badass, like so badass cover of Stairway to Heaven. Those words, right, in that song, so amazing. It's got First Eleven, Violet Landy, Hallocene, and, um, oh, what's the other girl's name? I forget. Anyway, take a listen and I'll see you in just a bit. Thank you. 
Ding. That was actually quite a nice cover, no? Um, the words of that uh, of that song ring very true. The sirens are many. <laughs> You'll be surprised how frequencies play into understanding things. This is how we can detect bullshit from truth. Frequencies. Frequencies. All right. So let's begin with some really neat stuff. First, we're going to start with um, the hidden history of the Supreme Court of the United States. Don't know if any of you have um, delved into any secret history of the Supreme Court, but this will be kind of interesting. This is from the Damage Report uh, with John Iadarola. Enjoy him. Should it? Must it? Or is it time for reform? Joining us now to discuss his, his upcoming book, uh, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, New York Times bestselling author and host of the Tom Hartman program. Tom Hartman, welcome back to the show. Hey, John. Great to see you again. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, I found your book really interesting, uh, History of the Supreme Court, and uh, like specifically talking about um, some of the biggest issues with it. But uh, I guess I should let you explain um, what's, the, what's the focus of the book this time around. Well, there were a couple of big stories that I wanted people to get. Uh, the first is that the court has, uh, particularly over the last 60 years or so, become an extremely political instrument. It's not the apolitical, uh, we're just calling balls and strikes that try to pretend they are. Particularly when you throw in this, uh, this made up fantasy that uh, Robert Bork came up with of orig originalism. We can read the minds of the founders, just like you know Jimmy Swagger tells you he can read God's mind. Uh, it's just as much of a scam. Uh, secondly, that the Supreme Court has taken power to itself that the framers and founders never intended for it to have, or at least many of them never intended for it to have. And that has uh, distorted our politics and our law in substantial ways. And the third is that Congress has uh, a set of powers to basically control and to use the language of the of the Constitution, regulate and provide exceptions to what the Supreme Court can do that Congress has virtually never used and uh, really should seriously consider using. And so, uh, you know, those are kind of the three big takeaways. So let's talk about one of the big powers, and you were sort of alluding to this uh, earlier. Uh, that is a judicial review. What should people know about this incredibly powerful? power that the Supreme Court gave itself. Yeah, it, it did. Uh, nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the Supreme Court can strike down a law by saying that that law violates the Constitution. The Constitution does not establish the Supreme Court as an arbiter of itself. Uh, it's very explicit and specific about what the Supreme Court can do. Um, you know, they're the, the first court of jurisdiction when it comes to international disputes, the first court of jurisdiction in debates or disputes between and among the states. But that uh, when it comes to regular law, that they are simply the final court of appeals. That, you know, you, you sue somebody and then they countersue and, you know, goes back and forth and back and forth. And eventually it has, the buck has to stop somewhere. And that's what the Supreme Court was from from you know eighteen 
1789, uh, right up until 1803, when in the Marbury versus Madison decision, the Supreme Court decided that they also had the power to strike down laws, saying that the supreme law of the land was the Constitution, and they were its arbiters, and therefore every other law had to be filtered through their understanding of what the Constitution meant. Um, this so flipped out President Thomas Jefferson that he, he just went nuts. He went on a rampage. He said, you know, under this doctrine, the Constitution has become a thing of wax. Uh, he said it's become a complete fellow de He wrote a, in a letter to uh, Abigail Adams, as I recall. Uh, fellow de is Latin for a suicide pact. Um, he said it, it, this, this makes it in another letter to... Uh, I'm forgetting who it was, but in any case, another letter, I think it might have been to Madison, he said, this, you know, under this doctrine, um, this makes the uh, judiciary the most despotic branch. And uh, it so, you know, created a huge controversy in the United States. And the outcome of that was that the court backed off. John Marshall never did that again. He was the longest serving Supreme Court justice in history, and he never, never did that again. It wasn't until 1856 when the Supreme Court Justice Roger Taney decided that he was going to once and for all settle the slavery problem. And in the Dred Scott decision ruled that all people of color in the United States could be bought and sold, period, full stop. And that, of course, led us right into the Civil War. And famously, Abraham Lincoln said, you know, I'm not going to do what the Supreme Court said. Yeah. But that's, that's, now that's pretty much all they do. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I think you do a great job in the book in making the case for how uh, the Supreme Court has uh, almost always sided with the the powerful and the wealthy, um, using that power and others. Uh, what are some examples that you'd like to point out um, that were most consequential in that area? Well, the court has uh, over over the I don't know how many years it is, like nearly ninety years, I guess, since uh, the the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, legalized unions. Uh, there were a few years there when they were on, on the side of unions, but starting in the 50s, really in a big way, they just started taking apart union power. And they've continued doing that right up to this day. Um, they defend corporations over people regularly. Um, they have always been the very last to defend civil rights on the occasions that they have. And uh, most recently, you know, John Roberts famously gutting the Voting Rights Act, which has led to, you know, massive voter disenfranchisement. Um, the, the list is long, John. It's a long list. And look, I know looking forward, a lot of people are worried that even if 2020 leaves us with a progressive in the White House, uh, Donald Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court have left in a position where it might spend the next two or four or eight years overturning key pieces of legislation. And so I know some people are, are thinking about the possibility of, of changing that in a number of different ways. Um, one hypothetically coming from this book is reforms to change the status of judicial review, their ability to overturn legislation. How likely would you say that is to happen? I think that's the, the least likely. I, I titled that chapter and it was based on a memo that John Roberts wrote when he was working for uh, Ronald Reagan in which he was talking about how they could overturn the Roe v. Wade decision of 73 and the Brown v. Board of 54, how they could overturn those two decisions without having to run through the court and without having to do a constitutional amendment. And he pointed out that Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate the court and to provide exceptions to what it can rule on. So Congress could literally pass a law saying, um, you know, states have to comply with the Voting Rights Act. And by the way, the Supreme Court may not review this. Mm -hmm. It would provoke a constitutional crisis, 
because uh, it's not been done before. But that power is explicit in the Constitution. And that's what John Roberts pointed out. Uh, Reagan didn't go for it. I don't think he ever thought that he had a large enough majority to be able to pull it off. But that would be one way to control the court. The other is court packing. Um, and we've seen political court packing. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt nearly did this in 37. And uh, he was actually, it was quite popular. The, the court had struck down child labor laws as unconstitutional. They'd struck down long-term unemployment payments. They had struck down parts of the right to unionize. Uh, they had struck down, you know, just a whole bunch of good progressive legislation. And they were fixing to strike down Social Security as unconstitutional in that, in that court session. And uh, it turns out, and so, you know, Roosevelt said, okay, we're going to make every justice over 70 be, be a justice emeritus and they don't have a vote anymore. Or in aggregate, there were five of them at that time. In aggregate, they have one vote and then we'll put four new people on the court to fill it out. He ultimately didn't have to do that because Francis Perkins had a conversation, his secretary of labor had a conversation with the wife of Justice Owens and basically convinced her to convince him to change his vote, which he did. And that was the end of that. But uh, Roosevelt had a lot of popular support for that. Um, another one is uh, in uh, after the Civil War, when Andrew Johnson became president, there was a vacancy on the court at that time um, that happened right around the time he became president. And uh, the Congress, you know, hated Johnson. I mean, that's why they impeached him. He was a slave owner. He was nakedly, uh, you know, uh, sympathetic to the South. And so they passed a law within a week or so of his becoming president that reduced the number of members of the court from seven to six so that he couldn't put anybody else on the court. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, about a month after he left office and Ulysses uh, or uh, yeah, U.S. Grant became president, uh, they had they passed another law raising the number of justices back up to seven. So uh, and that was very popular also. So there's a bunch of ways to get around the court. It's just been a long time since anybody seriously tried to do it. Well, uh, we might be entering a period where that sort of thing could be considered. Uh, the Supreme Court obviously uh, not not closely aligned with the interests of the American people in a number of important issues that are likely to face um, big legislative pushes over the next few years. So uh, in advance of that, I think that people should definitely take uh, a look at your book um, and get an idea of the, the history of this, where it might go from here. Uh, the Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. I, I believe it's available October 1st, Tom? Yeah, it ships October 1st. You can buy it on online bookstores now and you can put in a reservation in your local bookstore too. Awesome. Uh, Tom Hartman, thank you uh, as always for joining us. Thanks so much, John. Great talking with you again. That was interesting, right? That we have someone uh, who writes about these things. But, you know, so let's just listen to a former justice a couple years ago, what he had to say before we get into the told you SCOTUS gate started when I told you it was starting around my birthday. <laughs> I've said that. You can look it up on torysaid.com. So I'll show you how it started and we're going to see parts of that. But first, let's listen to what, you know, Justice John Paul Stevens had to say. And spent 35 years on the Supreme Court's most important decisions. Today, at 99 years old, he's still writing and weighing in on some of the country's most controversial issues. Judy Woodruff caught up with Justice Stevens last month, and he shared his thoughts on everything from President Trump to how a childhood accident shaped his future views on gun ownership. Today, John Paul Stevens remains one of the titans of American law, owing mostly to his long Supreme Court tenure which span decades. Even in retirement, he has stayed in the public eye, bow tie and all. A Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2012. 
two previous books about the court and the Constitution, published in 2011 and 2014. As he turns 99, the retired justice has written another, The Making of a Justice, Reflections on My First 94 Years. And he is opening up, carefully, about current affairs and even the current president. I'm not a fan of President Trump, I should say. I, I wouldn't try to comment on every particular issue in which we disagree, but there, there are plenty of them. And his effect on the country as president? I, I don't think it's been favorable. Can you elaborate? Well, that's not part of my responsibility as a judge, and I think I should not try to get involved in the politics as a retired judge. Stevens' new book of reflections begins in Chicago with his family's hotel business and an encounter his father, Ernest Stevens, had with one infamous Chicagoan. There are extraordinary anecdotes in here. Your father had a meeting with Al Capone. Uh, <laughs> Well, he said he did, and I assume he's telling me the truth. Stevens writes that his father and other hotel men in the city thought it important to persuade industry groups to hold their conventions in Chicago. His father and another hotel manager paid a visit to Al Capone, explained how Chicago's hotel business might be affected if any conventioneers were robbed and asked for his help. According to my father's account, Stevens continued, Capone said he understood, and in fact, there was not a single holdup in Chicago during the week of the convention. Stevens also recalls his own home being invaded in the winter of 1933, and a gun fired by an older brother, Jim, in the aftermath. Stevens wrote, despite threatening comments and behavior by the armed intruders, a neighbor came the closest to being a victim of a real tragedy when Jim shot so narrowly missed him. Did that have an effect on your thinking later about the judicial system? Well, yes, it did. And I've thought about that frequently for the fact that these accidents can happen when there are too many guns around. And that has reminded me of reason to be opposed to the Second Amendment. Stevens was on the high court in 2008 dissenting when Justice Antonin Scalia and other conservative colleagues voted in a landmark case to say that the Second Amendment does establish an individual right to bear arms. It's one of the three very, very bad cases, and it was particularly bad. There's no doubt about that. Do you worry that that is something that is going to stand for a long time and will continue to have repercussions in this, in this oh, country? Oh, yes, I certainly do. The other two rulings in that category that Stevens opposed at the time and laments to this day are the pivotal Bush v. Gore ruling deciding the 2000 presidential election and the landmark Citizens United ruling in 2010 on campaign finance during Stevens' final term. It's clear how strongly you feel that Citizens United was wrongly yes. decided. Why do you think it's had a, a corrosive effect on American politics? Just look at the amount of money. I can't give you the figures, but the millions and millions of dollars are, are spent on campaigns now. And often there's state representatives spending money provided by residents of other states. People in the district should be the ones who decide the outcome of elections.
Since his own departure, the court has not had to weigh in on a major Second Amendment or campaign finance case. But it has dealt several times with cases involving the death penalty and its implementation. My own thinking, it took quite a while to really reach the conclusion that the death penalty does more harm than good. It's a terribly expensive and really a pointless process because it, I think it accomplishes very little that can't be accomplished with more humane punishment. But right now the court is still divided on the issue? Yes. But you believe eventually the death penalty will be done away with oh, in this yes, country? Oh yes, and he certainly will. Today's court retains the conservative tilt that existed throughout much of Stevens' tenure, and since the installation of its newest justice, Brett Kavanaugh, some liberal groups have questioned whether some presidents, like the Roe v. Wade ruling on abortion rights, will remain. It looks as if the people who feel strongly anti-abortion want the court to take this up yeah. and do away with Roe v. Wade. Well, it, it could happen. I just don't know what's on the agenda for other justices. But it did seem to me that that was not a very controversial topic at the time of my uh, appointment. Nobody asked me a single question about abortion during my hearings. Later, opposition became more organized and more effective. But I can't predict what's going to happen in the near future. But in the long run, it seems to me that the abortion is a necessary uh, procedure that will be recognized and will be uh, performed lawfully. As for his former colleagues, Stevens helped swear in the current Chief Justice John Roberts in 2005. Despite any ideological differences, Stevens still holds Roberts in high esteem. I trusted him implicitly. I have the highest regard for him as a lawyer. And I must confess, I was disappointed at some of his decisions after he came on the bench that were much more conservative than I expected. But on the whole, uh, I think he's, he's still a very well-qualified person. But in the end, most of Stephen's new book serves as an account of how he himself has managed and sometimes failed to shape American law. You have a remarkable legacy on the court. You served for 35 years. What do you believe your legacy will be? Well, <laughs> it's difficult to figure out, but I, I'd like people to think I was an honest judge and a good judge. And I, I always tried to reach the best result in every case. Yeah, no. Let's listen to the story of Citizens United versus the FEC. And then we get into Scotusgate so I can show you how it happened. You were just not paying attention. In season one of The Story of Stuff, we looked at a system that creates way too much stuff and way too little of what we really want. Now we're going to start looking at the stories behind The Story of Stuff. That's where we'll find ways to turn this situation around. Welcome to season two. Bad for you, bad for America. He'll put us back on track. Hester ran our state into the ground. Now he wants to be your senator. Stand up. Say no. Stand up and say no. Bad for you, bad for America. Vote for this guy. Vote for this guy. Aren't you tired of this stuff? Why is it that every election season it becomes impossible to hear the facts over all these misleading ads? And if it seems the problem is only getting worse, that's because it is. We can thank the Supreme Court for that. 
In 2010, they decided that it would be just fine for corporations to spend as much money as they want telling us who to vote for. Wait, why are corporations telling us who to vote for? Let's get something straight. This is a democracy, you know, rule by the people. I'm a person, you're a person, and Chevron, not a person. So shouldn't elections be all about what people want? Good jobs, safe products, health care, responsible government, clean air and water. It turns out the vast majority of Americans want to see a lot more done on all of these things. But what people want is going to take a back seat as long as corporations can spend millions getting lawmakers elected. Oil companies have gotten politicians to block laws protecting our climate. Manufacturers have pushed through trade agreements that gut product safety and help ship jobs overseas. Insurance companies have been the first ones consulted on health reform, and giant corporations have gotten bailouts and subsidies. Maybe that's why all kinds of people, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, are totally frustrated with our government. It's the government! It's easy to get angry, but it's time we got smart and realized that the heart of our problem is not that we have bad lawmakers. We have a democracy in crisis. 85% of Americans feel that corporations have too much power in our democracy and people have too little. 85%! Hey, that's a majority. So let's get together and take our democracy back from the corporations. It's the first and most important step in making real progress on all the issues that people care most about. So how did we, the people, lose control of our democracy to begin with? Let's go back a few centuries. Back then, there were just people. Some of them owned businesses, some of them worked for businesses. Still, there were just people. Then people invented something entirely new, the corporation. These legal entities exist independently of the people who own them. If a corporation does something that gets it into trouble, the owners can say, don't blame me, blame the corporation. I'm just a shareholder. When the United States came into existence, corporations were easier to keep in check. Back then, the government would grant them charters for a specific short-term project, like building a bridge or a railroad. Once they fulfilled their purpose, they were disbanded. But over time, the law changed, and corporations no longer had to be turned off once their project was complete. They began to live on indefinitely, with a much more general purpose. Profit. And that's how the modern corporation was born. Today's corporations have evolved to have something very dangerous in their programming. Unlike people who are driven by all kinds of motivations, doing the right thing, love for family, their country, the planet, Publicly traded corporations are now required by law and the markets to pursue one single motivation above all others. Maximize value for shareholders. Make as much money as possible. That's it. No, really, that's what the law and the markets demand. Imagine a friend saying, the only thing I care about is money. It's not someone you'd want to leave your kids with, or your democracy for that matter. Yes, it is people who run these corporations, but their human motivations come second. If they prioritize anything at all over maximizing profits, they're out of there. Can corporate leaders do good things like give to charity or try to be more green? Sure, but not if it conflicts with maximum profits. And since their humble beginnings, corporations have grown huge. 53 of the 100 biggest economies on Earth now are corporations. So corporations have a single-minded profit motive. They're humongous. And their owners can easily dodge the blame for any harm they cause. That makes them tricky to share a country with. If we want them to serve us and not the other way around, they need some basic ground rules. And that's where the government comes in. Setting rules to keep things fair and safe and to protect society from corporations run amok. 
Now, if their main objective is to maximize profit, do you think corporations are content to follow the rules that keep them in check? No, of course not. They want to write those rules. But who is supposed to write the rules in a democracy? People. That's why one of the corporation's key strategies for sneaking into our democracy is saying that they should have the same First Amendment rights as real live people. And that's exactly how they won the 2010 Supreme Court case known as Citizens United versus FEC. In that case, five members of the Supreme Court decided that it's unconstitutional to put any limits on how much money corporations can spend influencing elections. Why? They said these limits violate the First Amendment guaranteeing free speech. Now, obviously, our founding fathers who wrote the First Amendment were trying to protect the free speech of people. But this decision rides on the crazy argument that corporations should be treated the same as people and get the same rights that real people get. This means corporations can spend as much as they want, whenever they want, to intimidate or crush candidates running on a platform against their interests and support candidates who will do what they ask. It's great news for corporations wanting to handpick the lawmakers whose job it is to keep them in check. Now, I am all for free speech. If every shareholder and employee at Exxon wants to personally support some oil lobbyist running for Senate, that's their right. There are millions more people who will support a different candidate. That's democracy in action. But now Exxon or any other corporation can decide to spend unlimited dollars from its huge corporate coffers to influence an election without even consulting its shareholders. This is a big deal. If the top 100 corporations decided to throw in just 1% of their profits, they could outspend every candidate for president, house, and senate combined. Good luck having your free speech heard over that. So did opening the floodgates on this money actually cause a flood? Sure did. In 2010, the kind of independent groups that corporations are now allowed to support spent $300 million. That's more than every midterm election since 1990 combined. So corporations are drowning out our voices, getting what they want, and our democracy is in trouble. But we can totally save it. People are so outraged by the Supreme Court decision that a massive response is mobilizing. Such a huge problem requires a huge solution, and we've got one. A new constitutional amendment. The amendment is smart and clear. It reverses this disaster to our democracy by clarifying that the First Amendment isn't meant for for-profit corporations. I get that amending the Constitution is a big, ambitious goal, but it's not impossible. Every time huge positive change has been made in this country, it's because people dreamed big, aimed high, and set ambitious goals. It's time to do that now, because the life of our democracy is on the line. Public financing of campaigns would be another huge step forward. Congress is working on a bill right now that would make it possible for candidates to get elected without corporate dollars. Remember, 85% of Americans think that corporations have too much influence in our democracy. That's enough to make change, if we can turn that sentiment into action. Look, the corporations won't get out of our democracy until we, the people, get back in. So keep fighting for renewable energy, green jobs, health care, safe products, and top-notch public education. But save some energy for the battle of our lifetimes. A battle that can open the door to solving all of these things. It's time to put corporations back in their place and to put the people back in charge of our democracy. So while all of you were screaming, it's a republic, it's no, no, no. Yeah, we know, but this is a red pill for the left, okay? As you can see, we talk green energy, we talk all that. Speaking of green energy, let me just share the new strikes and um, happenings uh, that are happening. <laughs> so let me show you this. Let's see, did it share? 
Um, no, I did not. Give me a second. Let me get that opened. All right. So now we should be able to not see it. Fantastic. That's just dandy, isn't it? Damn it. Well, I'll just tell you about it then. Turns out that um, today at 7 p.m. at Westminster Presbyterian Church on at 400 I Street Southwest in D.C., we have a bunch of people gathering. Thursday, November 4th, they're meeting at 6 a.m. to gather at Westminster Presbyterian Church on I Street, um, and they're going to have a celebratory picnic at 10 a.m., and then they begin mobilization. What are they mobilizing? We want to live climate mobilization. So they began their hunger strike to demand Joe Biden deliver his commitments for climate justice and good jobs in his Build Back Better agenda. It's not even his. It's not even his agenda. Tomorrow, they're starting again. They want uh, a, about a couple thousand people out there. That's what they're hoping for. We'll see. Now let's get into the really good stuff. Let's get into SCOTUSgate. Hold on. Let me find that. Let me find what I wanted to show. Hold on. Mm. I mean, I'm searching. Let's see. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Here we go. This is from February 25th, 2020. It's not Say it. I said the biggest thing is going to be Scotus Gate. What comes out like a random fart at a table? Sotomayor talking smack. Told you, Scotus Gate is coming, and my birthday is in like, oh my gosh, it's like, oh no, it's like around <laughs> plus or minus three, ten days. Wow! And mind you, on my birthday, I have to share it with every single woman because it's International Women's Day, right? Hold on, that was twenty twenty. Hold on, let me go to twenty twenty one now. Hold on. Um, mentioned it. Damn it, where is it? Um. Great. Now I can't find it. I think it was like May. Yeah. I can only do one word at a time with this search because I accidentally did not save it. Hold on. Um, okay. And it started. There we go. Where it is. Okay, here. This is February 22nd, 2021. Who said going to church, you're going to get sick. Nope. God is protecting me. That is what a real righteous leader says. A politician that pretends to be a spiritual father will tell you otherwise. And this is why, you know, SCOTUS gate was so great in February because it solidified that you cannot pick and choose churches. Now, let me show you SCOTUS gate live being debated. You're going to be like, what? Oh, yes. It was debated. Let's start from here. Network over the same five years raised $1.5 Now let's look at the big numbers. If dark money means C4 nonprofits, you and your friends have been ahead for half a decade. In the 2018 cycle, issue one reports the left got 54% of the cycle's $150 million. In the 2020 cycle, the Democratic Party's presidential candidate won the dark money race by roughly 132 million to 22 million, according to the Center for Responsive Politics. If dark money means C3 nonprofits like the Bradley Foundation, 
you're even more ahead. Our last study found left over right funding of public policy C3 groups is 3.7 to 1. In raw dollars, we're talking 2.2 billion for conservative groups, 8.1 billion for liberal groups. So you and your friends have more groups who fought these battles much longer and with much more dark money. Permit me a note on fundraising. Every member of this committee is a fundraiser. Is it nefarious when you raise funds from people who agree with your arguments? Of course not. Is it corrupt when you hire staff who've worked in other offices or in outside groups? Of course not. Every member here is proud to fight for what he or she believes in, to raise money for what he or she believes in, to work with anyone who will join you in your fight. Mr. Chairman, the people that your report targets are no different from you and your friends. They just have less money. Thank you, Mr. Walter. We now turn to Professor Adler. Professor, the floor is yours. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Kennedy, and members of this subcommittee. I thank you for the invitation to testify today about the Supreme Court. Uh, I care deeply about the court. It's been the focus of much of my scholarship and research with a particular focus on the Roberts Court and its relationship to business. I also care deeply about the values of accountability and the rule of law, which is one of the reasons why I helped co-found Checks and Balances three years ago. So these are issues that matter quite a bit. An important aspect of the rule of law is certainly our judicial system. And it's distressingly common for those who disagree with the court, with Supreme Court's decisions, to question the motivations of the justices. Rather than address the substance of their decisions on the merits or where applicable seek reform of the relevant laws at issue in contested court decisions, the court's critics too often prefer to demonize the justices and imply nefarious motivations. I'm afraid we've seen some of that today. Much public commentary on the Supreme Court fails to engage with the court's actual jurisprudence and instead seeks to apply reductionist labels to the court's work, focusing more on outcomes rather than the rationales and legal authorities. Commentators label the Roberts Court activist and accuse it of being an instrument of corporate interests or dark money. Such claims are misleading and overwrought at best. Some such claims are simply false. For example, by standard measures, the Roberts Court has been less activist than was the Warren Court, the Berger Court, or the Rehnquist Court. Specifically, the Roberts Court both overturns prior Supreme Court precedents and holds federal laws to be unconstitutional at a significantly lower rate than did its predecessors. And it's not particularly close. Moreover, such decisions have not moved uniformly in one ideological direction. For every Janus or Citizens United, there is an Obergefell or a Windsor or a Boumediene or a Ramos. The Roberts Court is actually more of a status quo court than an activist court, and it has, it has been more status quo oriented and more deferential to Congress than any court in the past 60 years. We can disagree or agree with the court's decisions, but that is simply a fact about how this court has acted. The decisions of the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Roberts are best explained, understood, and predicted as a consequence of the respective justices' jurisprudential and doctrinal commitments, and not as a consequence of undue favoritism for or undue influenced by any particular interest group, economic or otherwise. This is why business groups win some cases and lose others. This is also why the conservative justices that form the court's majority agree with each other in some cases and disagree in others. If the Supreme Court or a majority of the current justices were enthralled to a corporate agenda, one would expect that business groups would most often prevail where the stakes are the highest, where business interests had the most to gain or the most to lose. 
Yet with few exceptions, that is not at all what we have witnessed from the Roberts Court. While business groups routinely prevail in cases asking the Supreme Court to corral the wayward appeals court decision or reject an innovative, if also unprecedented litigation theory, they regularly lose when the law is against them, when they seek dramatic changes in doctrine, particularly constitutional doctrine. And this has occurred often in some of the most consequential cases before the court. If the Roberts Court were truly enthralled to a pro-corporate agenda, it would be hard to explain decisions like Massachusetts versus EPA, or EPA versus EME Homer City Generation, or Wyeth versus Levine, or, and I could go on and on. One just looks, for example, at the court's federal preemption jurisprudence, an area that, that business interests care quite a bit about, one cannot see any evidence of, of corporate influence. One cannot explain decisions like Chamber of Commerce versus Whiting or the recent Virginia Uranium decision uh, based on any theory about corporate influence. We can explain those decisions if we pay attention to the individual jurisprudential preferences of the justices. Roberts Court is certainly a conservative court on most issues most of the time, and sometimes conservative rulings do help business, as when the court refuses to recognize new implied causes of action or bless the latest theory for a new type of class action. But sometimes conservative rulings do not advance business interests, and all of the justices on both the left and the right place their jurisprudential commitments ahead of any desire to help or harm a particular interest or a particular group. None of this is to say that political and economic interest groups do not seek to influence the court. Of course they do. The court's decisions are important and people care greatly about how the court's decisions come out. This hearing is a testament to that. Organizations on both the left and the right invest substantial sums to support their causes and influence the judiciary, whether by influencing the confirmation process or encouraging the court to reach particular conclusions. Some groups even see such conflicts as a fundraising opportunity. But there is nothing nefarious about groups of Americans seeking to have their voices heard about the actions of their government. If a single free video game, Fortnite, can net over a billion dollars in a single year, I'm not sure why $250 million over five years is signs of a crisis. What we should admit is that efforts by ideological and economic interests to influence the federal courts are an inevitable consequence of turning over so many political and economic questions to the federal courts. The more that is at stake in the federal judiciary, the more various interests and factions will seek to ensure that their perspectives prevail. The only way this will change is to make the courts less central to the political and economic life of the nation. As the range of issues touched and constitutionalized by the courts has expanded over the past century, so too has the value of influencing judicial decisions. This in turn has increased the incentive to influence the court's behavior, whether through the nomination process, amicus briefs, or even overt efforts to place political pressure on the courts. If judicial decisions instead of votes in Congress are going to resolve the key questions of the day, then that is where political and economic interests will focus their resources and attention. If we want to lower that incentive, we have to lower the stakes. The more questions Congress can resolve itself, the less pressure there will be on the courts to resolve those same questions. The less Congress leads to the courts, the less people will care about who is nominating or confirming individual judges. Congress could facilitate this process by taking more care in drafting statutes, regularly reauthorizing federal programs and restoring the traditional legislative process, as well as by avoiding partisan attacks on judicial integrity and independence. Moreover, if the confirmation process were turned to a focus on judicial qualifications, interest groups would not feel the need to invest so heavily in confirmation battles. These and other steps are things that Congress could do to help. Thank you again for the opportunity to present my views, Mr. Chairman. I hope that my perspective has been helpful and I am happy to answer any questions that you or other members of this committee may have. 
Thank you, Professor. I appreciate it. Um, for the questioning, I'm going to begin with uh, Chairman of the Committee, uh, Senator Durbin, who has joined us here in the subcommittee hearing, and uh, we'll yield him my time. I'm going to be here till the bitter end, so I will go last. Thanks very much, uh, Chairman Whitehouse, and thanks for having this hearing. I know of your intense interest in the subject and uh, your ample research on the matter far beyond any other senator uh, that I know. Uh, you've tackled this issue and today bring in some experts for us to test their opinions. I have a statement for the record I'm not going to read, but I would like to say a few things. Just this week, we were reminded of how dark money operates. A right-wing dark money group called the Judicial Crisis Network, well known to most senators, has targeted Vanita Gupta, President Biden's nominee to be Associate Attorney General, with an ad campaign with vicious and blatant lies. In a recent editorial, the Washington Post called the ad that they are running a, quote, baseless smear campaign, categorically dishonest and mainly notable for the magnitude of the lies and distortions it crams into 30 seconds. This wasn't our first experience with the Judicial Crisis Network. They are certainly known for spending millions of dollars in dark money to block the nomination of Judge Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court five years ago. What an irony that today Judge Garland gets his next assignment in public life with a bipartisan vote, I might add, in the United States Senate. Maybe that's a portent of good things to come. I certainly hope so. I'd like to know more about the Judicial Crisis Network. I'm not saying they don't have a right to speak their mind, but I think we have a right to ask, well, who paid for it? Who's really behind this effort? You know, when you bring up this question with some, they say, well, if you disclose the sources of money for these dark money efforts, it will scare them away. They don't want to be terrorized by the press or anyone. They want to be able to just exercise their corporate free speech or free speech, whichever it is, and to do it without fear of retribution. Interesting, to argue that point of view with a group of senators who are obliged under law to disclose all of their donors virtually, certainly any significant donors, we live with that. That's our standard of operation. There may be many areas that uh, could be questioned about how we raise money for campaigns, but certainly disclosure is not one of them as far as I'm concerned. I think it is perfectly appropriate to disclose the people who contribute to my campaign. Now, having said that, we all know what's going on with super PACs and other entities, and I'll save that for another day. But I will just say that the bottom line as far as I'm concerned is this. I don't think any of us have any doubts of how the American people would ask, answer the following question. Do you believe we need longer political campaigns? I think I know the answer to that. Do you believe that we need more people putting negative ads on television in their campaigns? We know the answer to that too. And we are now reaching a breaking point, I'm afraid, uh, in this whole process that is going to discourage the common woman or man from even engaging. Uh, so I salute you for bringing this issue before us. I'd like to make one last point. In the notes I've read in preparation for this, I understand that now this dark money effort is going toward the voter suppression campaign across America. In 40 states, 250 proposals, all of, all of which are designed to restrict voting in America. Now, I'm an amateur student of history. I quickly underline amateur. And I see recurring themes. Ku Klux Klan appears and reappears about every 50 years. If you look at history, 1865, 1915, 
mid-50s to 60s, and now again in some new form. The effort of voter suppression appears and reappears in history. When it first started in 1890, during the Jim Crow era, there was something called the Mississippi Plan. The Mississippi Plan was an ingenious device by racists to preclude blacks from voting. Uh, count the butter beans in a jar, answer questions on the Constitution, pay a poll tax, literacy test. All of these were designed to stop African Americans from voting. They were successful. They drove down voter participation in some of the states in the South in the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century, to levels we've never seen before. Thank goodness. And won't see again, I hope. But it worked. And now there is an effort underway to in, impose voter suppression across the United States again to suppress the votes of black and brown people. Why is this a recurring theme in American history? And what does it say about us that we want to make it more difficult for people to exercise their right to vote? If there is fraud, go after it, whoever is benefiting from it. But certainly this president has proven claims of fraud don't meet the laugh test or even the evidence test when he takes them to court. I'll close by saying this. Monday of this week, the last Trump case to go to court went to the Supreme Court and was dismissed without comment. It's an indication of even a president with millions of dollars cannot manufacture fraud where it doesn't exist. So I would say the voter suppression efforts across this country are a sad commentary that we have not learned a lesson of history. Uh, I think we all understand that if you're going to win an election, you have to have a winning message. Simply deciding that you'll reduce the number of people voting is not a winning message. I yield. Senator Kennedy. Thank you, um, Mr. Jealous. He speaks when he speaks, so come up. Mr. Jealous, let me apologize in advance. I may have to interrupt some of your answers because we all uh, we only have five minutes. I'm not trying to be rude. I just got a number of questions. Uh, I appreciate your passion. Um, I confess I don't understand exactly what you're alleging. I get the part where you think that corporate money and dark money is dangerous. And I got the part where, where you don't think Chief Justice Roberts is doing a particularly swell job. Nor do you like many of his opinions. Connect those two for me. I mean, are you suggesting that someone is using the corporate money to bribe the Chief Justice? Uh, for, for me, I was having trouble hearing at the very beginning. You mean I got to repeat all that? No, 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 no. I, I heard the question, sir. At the very beginning, I couldn't hear who you were addressing it to. I wanted to make sure that it was to me before I answered. That's all, sir. So, sure. Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but as a former investigative reader. But are you, just help me get to the bottom line. Are you suggesting that someone's using the corporate money or the dark money to bribe the chief justice? What I'm suggesting, sir, is that there's a rigged system uh, that's, Pretty obvious. I mean, when you look at the Chamber of Commerce, what, what, what do you mean by rigged? What I mean by rigged, sir, is that you've got dark money spending $18 million to put a pro corporate justice on the Supreme Court. How do you know that's influencing the way the Chief Justice decides cases? Well, sir, it, it, the, uh, you know, it's uh, notable that the 
last two you know, that the justice who got held back didn't no, have 18 but, but million. But how do you know that the money is influencing the way the chief justice decides cases? Now you've made a you've made a very serious allegation. Tell me yes, how sir. you back it up. Sir, what I described is a rigged system in which you have dark money campaigns. What 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 wait, Mr. Jones, I'm sorry, but justice is on to our Supreme Court. I'm trying to stay on the subject. I listen patiently sure. to you to your speech and I, I I appreciate your passion. But we need to connect the two. You've made some pretty serious allegations. And now, sir, are, you, are you, you saying that this off, dark sir. money and this corporate money is is um, is is being used? Well, let me put it another way: Are you saying chief, the chief justice is voting the way he's voting because of this dark money and corporate money? In part, sir. Okay. You, let me ask. You uh, let me, that, I'm sorry to cut you off. You, uh, let me go to Ms. Uh, Graves. Ms. Graves. I, I, I appreciate your passion, too. Uh, and I got the part about the Federalist Society. And I got you and you made some comments about dark money going to the Federalist Society. And you talked to I, I take it you're not a fan of Justice Kavanaugh's nomination. How do you connect those two? Are you suggesting that the Federalist Society bribe somebody to nominate? Justice Kavanaugh? Senator Kennedy, the record shows that Donald Trump outsourced the pre-selection process for judicial nominees to Leonard Leo, who has long been the I, vice I president. I understand. I, re I remember that. I remember that. But but I'm, I'm trying to understand what you're alleging. Are you alleging that the Federalist Society bribed the president of the United States to nominate Kavanaugh with this dark money? What I'm saying, Senator, is that the record shows that uh, this federal society and Leonard Leo has exercised extraordinary influence over handpicking who gets on the court. And then he went to donors at the Council on National Policy to tell them that due to these selections, America was at the precipice of a revival of laws dating back more than 100 years. Yes, ma'am, and I listened to your speech, but I'm trying to understand. You've you got to connect up. These are serious allegations you're making, and you've got to connect up the money to the decision. Yes, certainly, sir. And in fact, uh, Leonard are, Leo are made... Say, but are you saying that, that Trump would not have selected Kavanaugh but for this dark money? What I'm saying is that it's quite clear that these individuals were handpicked by Leonard Leo for Donald Trump to choose from because he thought that they would advance his agenda. And his How agenda do you know is that? Because he told the Council on National Policy in his own words. No, he said he, was, he, he, he said he was influenced by, I'm not defending him, but he said he was influenced by the, the how do you know what was in the, the president's head? I don't think anyone knows what's in uh, that president's head, uh, Donald Trump's head. But I think that what's clear is that he spoke many times about how he was giving the role of choosing to the Federal Society. The Federal Society has advanced a number of positions. Okay. Through Let me ask you one last question because I don't want I don't, I don't want to overdo my time. Are you suggesting that the Federal Society is using this dark money to bribe anybody? Senator, there's an array of ways in which judicial, uh, the judicial function can be corrupted, and dark money is a way of corruption. Well, uh, is, is, are they bribing somebody? Uh, like, and if so, like, who is it? Like a brown paper bag of cash is not the only way in which money can influence and distort the rulings of judges. 
or of others. And so this issue of how you define bribery, I think, is somewhat of a red herring. In fact, before the well, people... Do you think they're being bribed one way? Just tell me. If you do, it's I, okay. I just want to know what you're saying. I do think you that think they're, that they're bribing uh, anybody to have somebody nominated? Senator, there's a legal definition of bribery in the United States Code that's a very specific, narrow definition. Okay, I'm that's done. That's not the person's definition of corruption and undue influence. Mr. Lee, Senator Lee. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to all of you for uh, uh, being willing to testify today. Ms. Graves, I want to pick up with you uh, sort of where you left off with Senator Kennedy. Now, you talk in your testimony a fair amount about the dangers of dark money to further conservative causes, but then you seem to leave out the, the, the liberal dark money organizations like the Tides Foundation, the Schwab Charitable Fund, the George Soros Foundation to promote open society, and, of course, Arabella Advisors. And I thought this might have been an oversight. Uh, that is, perhaps in, until I realized that your organization, the Center for, for Media and Democracy, itself receives donations uh, from these same dark money groups. And so in an effort to be consistent with your testimony today about the evils of dark money, Will you commit that the Center for Media and Democracy will no longer accept these dark money donations? Well, Senator, I think that there's a specific definition of dark money that is embodied in the statutes that seek to uh, uh, obtain disclosure of it. That's okay, and, and how does that definition encompass the conservative organizations that you don't like and exclude the dark money that you receive. What's, tell, me, tell me what the difference there is. Senator Lee, um, what my testimony says is that I support these uh, neutral laws applying to all groups equally, whether they're Democratic or Republican or progressive or conservative or libertarian, and that the standards are about their conduct in terms of influencing elections, spending money on advertising, um, there's a set of thresholds that it, that's embodied in those um, measures that I think sets a very neutral and appropriate range for when money should be disclosed. And it doesn't reach a number of nonprofits that aren't involved in running ads around elections. It doesn't reach uh, nonprofit activity around, you know, hospitals or uh, other charitable functions. It's specifically tailored to those entities that are running ads as as if they were a PAC, okay. like a political action well, campaign. Will you agree to not take anonymous donations? Uh, uh, Senator, I, I received an anonymous donation several years ago, and it was anonymous to me. It wasn't just anonymous to the world. I don't know who the person Okay, what was. about, what about donations from groups that don't themselves publicly disclose their donor lists or the amounts that they've received? And also, how much of the money, you, the dark money you received was used to support the filing of amicus briefs in the Supreme Court? Uh, I reject your premise, Senator, quite respectfully, but there was no dark money that I received um, or that the Center for Media and Democracy received, and so I'm sort of puzzled by your premise. If you look at the definitions that are in the statute for the activity that's, uh, that Congress is attempting to regulate, it doesn't apply at all to the work that I've been doing in investigative journalism and the work that the Center for Media, for Media and Democracy uh, has done. Okay, I have to say, I'm very perplexed um, 
by the distinctions that are being drawn, as far as I can tell, well, we've got distinctions being made by our witnesses between conservative groups and liberal groups. Look, pick a horse and ride it. If you don't like dark money, that's one thing. If you, if you, you like it, own it where you take it. Uh, but this middle ground of trying to suggest that um, it's holy, that it's righteous, if it's in support of a liberal cause, it doesn't sit well with most people. Um, let's go to Professor Adler for a moment. Um, Professor, you, you mentioned your testimony. Uh, Chairman Whitehouse's report with the American Constitutional Society made much about the so-called Roberts Five between 2005 uh, and 2006, and also the 2017 to 2018 term, and the number of uh, so-called partisan decisions. But a closer look at those numbers shows that of the 212 five to four decisions over this time period, that is uh, uh, from OT05 through the end of OT17, um, of the 212 five to four decisions during that time period, over 60% over were instances where a member of the Roberts Five sided with the liberal bloc on the court to produce a majority, while only 36% were five to four decisions where the uh, conservatives on the court stuck together. Would you expect the numbers to be different than that if, if the conservative groups uh, and the justices that had previously been supported or defended by conservative groups were themselves beholden to nefarious special interest groups? Sure. Uh, sure, Senator. There are actually several reasons why I think those numbers are surprising, but in very different ways than in the report. First, as I note in, in my, my written testimony, Supreme Court only, is only taking about 70 or so cases a year out of the thousands upon thousands that are in the federal courts, out of the hundreds of cert petitions that are filed. They're only taking cases for the most part in which lower courts have split. So these are cases in which lower court judges, uh, very smart people with very capable clerks giving their best effort could nonetheless not reach unanimity about what the proper legal results are. So the Supreme Court's only taking the hardest cases in the, in the federal court system to begin with. And then, uh, of those, only a small fraction of those cases are decided five to four. And then of the five, four cases, even though you have five Republican conserv Republican appointed conservative judges, justices, sorry, and four Democrat appointed liberal justices, you still only see 36% of the five, four decisions splitting along those lines. Uh, given that these are the hardest cases, the cases that divide the lower courts so much, if what we were seeing was a conservative cabal that would vote as a block, we would not only expect the number of 5-4 decisions to be higher, we would also expect the number of 5-4 decisions decided along purely ideological or partisan lines to be larger than it is. And it is scarcely more than a third of the 5-4 decisions over that time period. I think that, it, that shows that what's driving the justices is not fealty to a team uh, of believing that they owe whoever may or may not have supported them years ago when they were nominated, but their best efforts to get the answer right. And in those really hard cases where the constitutional text might not be clear or the statutes might not be clear, the fact that we get disagreements among justices and that sometimes they align up 
based on their underlying judicial philosophy shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us, and, and I think actually inspire us, is how often, despite these deep jurisprudential differences, they are able to be unanimous, they are able to decide cases eight to one, seven to two. That should give us confidence in our judicial system. Uh, and, and we should note the low number of 5-4 cases decided along ideological lines, uh, because it really is a low number when placed into perspective. I uh, owe an apology to Senator Hirono, who is joining us electronically and who I skipped over. Let me turn to Senator Hirono now. Thank you. Does that mean that I get 10 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to associate we'll give you some myself. I would like to associate myself with your opening remarks and the remarks of the Judiciary Committee Chair Durbin. I heard uh, Professor Adler say that uh, the Roberts Court is qu quantitatively business-oriented, but not necessarily qualitatively so. I would say that one of the most consequential decisions that the Roberts Court made, which opened the floodgates to dark money, is Citizens United. I'd say that decision, um, you know what, we can argue about maybe some of the other decisions that weren't so consequential. Hey, to me, that is like an A1 consequential decision, so there you go. I have a question for Professor Klarman, uh, Mr. Jealous, and uh, also Ms. Graves. And I know that, that the chair is going to get to this, but the bottom line for me in this hearing is that we can argue all we want about who's accepting dark money, both the left and the right conservative liberal accepting dark money, but uh, the bottom line is that uh, uh, all of this should be disclosed. So uh, I, I want to start by saying there is clearly dark money being used to fund political campaigns and activities. And there are arguments from Democrats that Leonard Leo, the Federalist Society, and the Brain Trusts have been using dark money to capture our federal courts. How do I know this? Because I have been sitting on the Judiciary Committee ever since, pretty much ever since I uh, became elected to the Senate. So Republicans have been arguing that the left is increasingly using dark money. A simple solution would be to require everyone to disclose where their money comes from. But so far, only Democrats are supporting that. Only Democrats are saying that everybody's dark money should be disclosed. So for Mr. Jealous, would you like to add to this discussion? Yeah, I would just like to thank you, Senator. And it's deeply troubling and, and offensive that that case keeps getting used by the right. Um, you know, I've, I've sat with the adult children of... And I will be brief. Transparency is one thing, but that's not what you talked about in your opening statement. Now, what, what I heard you say, Mr. Jealous, was that, that Chief Justice Roberts would not have voted the way he did in many of the cases you criticized, but for this dark money and corporate money. Now, that's what you said. Sir, what I what and I talked serious about is a heart is four heart attacks and a stroke. Well, sir, that has please, nothing I don't, to do with transparency. Sir, I don't want to ha have a heart attack. And I don't want you to have one. So just let me finish, please. And what I'd say, sir, is this: that the rig system is pretty obvious. When you see seventeen million dollars spent to push a uh, nominee through, a pro corporate nominee through, and the rig system is even more obvious when you look at the hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent to push nominees through. Then it becomes even more clear when you dig in and you see how many of the same donors how is it are rigged? How supporting is the, the Federalist Society, are supporting the campaigns of senators 
who will then preside over the nominations process. And the people of this country, sir, all we want is transparency, and that's bipartisan. Yeah, yeah, but that's not what you allege, Mr. Jealous. You, you allege biggest doubts. You, you said that that you, you you said that Chief Justice Roberts would not have voted as he did in some of the cases, but for this corporate dark money. Now that's a no, serious sir, allegation. I would refer you back to my to you know to my testimony. It's all written. For the specifics, what I described was a rigged system in which Chief Justice Roberts operates, in which the Supreme Court has become captured by corporate interests, in which the, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which respectfully does not represent Main Street or corporations, let me interrupt here just okay, one second. I'm sorry, Mr. Uh, Chairman. The, I abuse my privilege and I ask your forgiveness. Thank you, sir. And uh, I think it's um, Senator Tillis' turn. That for now. So they've already started the conversations and since nobody looks around for them, I guess I will be showcasing them slowly so that you can see them for yourself. Those of you that are on Twitch, we're going to do a badass raid right now. Just letting you know. Those of you that are not and you're on Facebook, have a great night.